Hello, I'm Zev Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. My friends, the focus of this interview is on a relatively new and rapidly expanding mode of care known as hospital at home. Now, before we introduce our guests today, I'm going to make a request of you. If you listen to this podcast and you find value in it, I'd like you to share it with your colleagues. So very specifically, here's what you can do. As soon as you're done listening to this episode or the next time you see one of our social media graphics on LinkedIn or Twitter, I'd like you to share it with your colleagues. Just blast it out on LinkedIn or Twitter or via your professional listserv. I greatly appreciate you taking a moment to help spread the podcast and spread the word on creating a new healthcare. So our guest today, and I'm so, so excited uh, to speak again with Raphael Rakowski. He is one of the most significant entrepreneurial leaders in this rapidly advancing direction of healthcare delivery, the hospital at home and home-based care. And in 2010, years before most of us ever heard of this idea, Raphael led a team of engineers and clinicians in the creation of Clinically Home, the first commercially scalable model to enable safe hospitalization at home. And yes, I said that safe hospitalization at home. In 2017, Raphael and his team created a next gen version of clinically home called medically home. And he joined forces with Atrius Health, a large multi-specialty medical group in Eastern Massachusetts to bring the program to market. In 2020, after his role as CEO and founder of medically home, Raphael was named executive chairman of Medically Home Group, Inc. Medically Home operates uh, now in multiple states with a large number of strategic partners and most recently formed a deep strategic partnership with the Mayo Clinic and Kaiser Permanente. Now, I'm not going to spend any time telling you about uh, Raphael's rich background, his professional career. Instead, I'm going to ask him to, to give us a sketch of that. He is incredibly accomplished, uh, an amazing person. Uh, I'm sure you'll agree after you hear from him. Raphael, um, just want to say, how are you today? I'm fantastic. Thank you and happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Well, welcome to Creating New Healthcare. Listen, Raphael, you have such an amazing personal and, and professional background. L later on in the dialogue, I'm going to ask you a little bit more about your perspectives and where they came from and your influences. But could you just take a moment just to give folks a sketch of your career? Because it is so diverse, and, and I think it really is key to how you came to think about the medically home and the hospital home. But just could you take a moment just to share with the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. I, I guess in a minimum, it's been eclectic and, and perhaps there's been a secret hand uh, organizing how these different things that I've done has come together. But in the end, I imagine has. So I began uh, as a sales engineer with Honeywell, uh, selling large systems, control systems for buildings and factories. And then I became a process control engineering consultant, redesigning factories all over the world. And that was actually a lot of fun. I, I missed that part of, of my life. And I got a chance to redo about 200 plus factories and every pretty imaginable manufacturing process, all a very large scale, most of it international. As a result, when you, when you watched factories, industrial processes that were designed, you know, five, six, seven, eight decades ago, and as the company and the processes iterate, they change 
and they lose their holistic kind of connectivity to each other. When originally the original idea of a factory, all of the designs work together. And then as you added products, machines, technologies, people, real estate, it lost that integrity and it started to get out of sync with itself. And I discovered that with an open eye, you can actually bring things back together. That's kind of the first point in my career where I recognized this idea of large systems going out of sync with each other. After that, I became an entrepreneur. I was, I think, the first guy to put salad in a bag. Uh, that was my first business in California. And, and then I sold that company and, and got interested in starting and incubating businesses that had a very specific focus on operations, logistics, things that were enabled by a new way to think about how you can engineer improvements, changes in systems. I did about 10 companies and a, and a little business in South Norwalk uh, called New Paradigm Ventures. The 10th was with DuPont Consumer Health. And the, the, the assignment that I got was to reinvent consumer healthcare, a new front end of consumer healthcare hmm. for DuPont after they made the first investment in a company in Atlanta called WebMD. Uh, that was the first time I actually got exposed to healthcare services. I was a product guy, a factory guy, an operations guy. And it was the first time I got my arms around how complicated the healthcare system is and was. And I focused initially on where the money was, where the systems was, and how patients you know, encountered. And I realized there was no healthcare system because the system is a fully integrated you know, set of activities. And there was no, there was no integration. So I got, I got really, really familiar with that assignment. And then that led into a company that I created for DuPont called Empower Health. DuPont exited the consumer health business. I acquired the rights to that. And then I merged that with a public company called American Healthways, which at the time was a diabetes disease management company. In the merger, I became president of the combined company. And we grew very, very rapidly to become a very large you know, uh, population health company with about 3 million patients and pretty successful operationally and, and financially. And that's when I really cut my teeth on large scale um, you know, systems that would help patients prevent the need for hospitalization. And after that, um, believe it or not, Zev, I, I went to Brazil with my partner. We started a public bioinfinity fuels company and, and then had a couple of other ventures that I hit, hit my 50s. And to make a very long story short, I was joining the board of a um, health system here in, in the East Coast. Uh, and my friend was vacating his board seat. And during that time, by coincidence, my father was admitted to that same hospital as a patient. And, and he's a Holocaust survivor, was a Holocaust survivor. And uh, I started to keep a diary of his care because I thought that would be instructive in my conversations with the board. To make that story, rapid. He, he unfortunately lost his life from three medical errors while I was watching and keeping account of his care. And that's how this, this idea was born. Uh, so my career has spanned from truly from engineering, manufacturing, engineering, entrepreneurial startups, healthcare services, and a whole bunch of stuff in between. But and it ended up with the personal mission in, on behalf of you know, the experiences that my father had in his name and in my mother's name, trying to make this, this idea of providing care to patients um, at home where I believe they want it the most uh, available and safe. And that's mm -hmm. a, a thumbnail of my crazy 40-year career. Uh, Raphael, I, I literally could spend e easily the next couple hours just diving into that. And 
you know, it's so clear all those facets of your background really contribute to what you're doing today. And I suspect what you're going to be doing in the future in healthcare. What about your father's care specifically? And, and I don't know if you want to mention the small hospital system that you were on the board of and your father was a, was a patient and it's not just any hospital system, I understand, but it's a preeminent one. Yeah, well, it wasn't small, and it, and it's very large, and I, I'd rather not. But the the care was spectacular. However, uh, and this is something that everybody should know when when you industrialize medicine, and remember, my background is, is industrialization. So when you start to put workflows together, processes together, handoffs, transfers, treating patients as if they're a transmission inside of a you know, Chevy Camaro plant, you lose the holistic nature of what care needs to look like and feel like single point of accountability, a healer's you know, directional connection between the patient and importantly with the family. You lose all that when you industrialize care. And somebody 40, 50 years ago, given the growing costs of healthcare in hospitals, came up with the idea of industrializing it. And, and in the process of industrializing it, Lots and lots of errors are, are predictable. And as a result, you know, my father's, the things that happened to my father were very, very unfortunate. But unfortunately, they happen uh, reliably every year between 50 and 100,000, you know, patients die in hospitals from preventable medical errors. And, and that's a dirty little secret that, that uh, unfortunately is part of an artifact of the way in which we've designed care delivery. Uh, to try to achieve efficiency. But anyway, that's what I learned. And, and, and what I discovered was that 65% of the cost of that care in a hospital is bricks and mortar overhead. And it's that overhead, mm. the cost of that overhead that creates a tax on the care. And when you're left, uh, you know, Zev, with only 35% for clinicians and medical care, it's inadequate. And as a result, you have enormous pressure to discharge the patient as quickly as possible because the hospitals get a fixed price for the care. And if your price is the same and keep the patient for 10 days, as opposed to three days, you could imagine the financial pressure on that hospital to move the patient out as quickly as possible. So there are a lot of different forces at play that pressure the hospital, reliably pressure the hospital around patient care that is not in the best interest of patients. So I, I believe then, and I believe now, and we're living it because we're doing it, mm -hmm. that a patient's care has to continue until they're clinically stable. It's not, you can't say the patient is done, they're finished with their hospitalization, and now we're gonna send them to post-acute care. There is no such thing as post-acute care. That's a, that's a word that was invented as an artifact of reimbursement. You're either sick or you're not sick. You're not post-acute sick and acute sick. Mm -hmm. You're sick or you're not sick. And, and you should be cared for by the same care team until you're not sick anymore. And that's the basic idea. And a hospital can't keep a patient for 7, 10, 15, 30 days and get paid for the cost of you know, caring for the patient for four or six days. That's the problem, which grew into a pretty enormous skilled nursing facility business, which in theory completed the care with, that was not completed in the hospital. Readmission rates of 15 to 20% to care for the patient a second time because they weren't adequately cared for the first time. Mm -hmm. All of these artifacts, readmissions, post-acute care is a, a absolutely blatant signal that the financial and business model of a hospital doesn't work anymore because of the burden of those fixed costs. That is remarkable. I've never heard that number. 
in our correspondence, you actually put it this way, that our obsession with the use of buildings and facilities to deliver care literally robs 65% of the cost of care, which is astounding. Where did that number come from, if you don't mind my asking you that? Well, the first time I saw it was at that hospital, but every customer I've had since, I, I studied that pretty intensely. There's no formal, this is one of the most interesting parts about the way you track fixed costs. There, the accounting of fixed costs and overhead is done you know, relatively differently in every health system, but reliably it's, it's between 60 and 80% across the country. Mm. But if you just think about all the overhead you need to operate a hospital, it's pretty significant. Mm -hmm. And one of, our, one of our founders, a very dear friend of mine, who was the CFO of three health systems, when we were getting ready to launch, uh, I tracked how much money we spent because all the initial funds Zev, to start Medically Home were our own. Uh, we weren't able to raise capital because you can't raise capital until you have patients and you can't get patients to raise capital. <laughs> so it was, it was a little bit of a chicken and an egg, but I asked him point blank how much it took in capital to be able to see your first patient when you're building a traditional hospital. And he said, on average, it's between 30 and $45 million to see your first patient. And that's including the building, obviously all the regulatory, there's an enormous amount of infrastructure you need to be able to see patient one. Mm -hmm. And ours was about 7 million to see our first patient. And that's not a trivial amount, but compared to building a hospital, you could just see where the overhead of the fixed costs come into play. And today on average in the US to build one hospital bed, is about 2 million in the West Coast, it's about four and a half million because of earthquake laws. Uh, so it is a very daunting financial investment you need to make in bricks and mortar to enable the use of a hospital. Right. That's a that's a an astounding number per bed is what you were saying. That's millions. per bed. And and by the way, the the I did mention kind of this obsession mm -hmm. with buildings, or as my colleague Bruce Left says, edifice complex. It really began, you know, in, in Egypt and, and these large structures. And by, by the way, we did the exact same thing in Washington, DC, in the way we we try to you know, project power with large buildings and the larger the building, the smaller the person feels or theoretically the more confident. And all the large banks that were built in the large cities in the US in the beginning were all marble you know, with pillars, columns. And it was just, it's, it, it's part of the consciousness of we, what we thought people needed to feel comfortable around stability, you know, credibility was these large buildings. Um, and there aren't a lot of large buildings in, in the model that you know, is called Amazon today. That reminds me of a quote I think I heard recently from Elon Musk about uh, the winners in the market uh, build uh, software and technology and the losers build buildings and monuments, uh, something like that. But one would assume that putting uh, hospital beds in a building or facility and centralizing that, um, you would assume there was would be some sort of, you know, economy of scale or efficiency out of that having, you know, ICUs and operating rooms and, and step-down units and all those together. But what you're saying is, and again, given your background in building factories, which fundamentally is, you know, I think uh, sounds like the metaphor that hospital systems are built on. And you're saying fundamentally that premise, that approach to delivering healthcare, acute healthcare is flawed. And I just want to be, I, I just want to clarify that. Yeah. You. So this, this requires a little explanation, Zev, and I, I, I ask your your patience with me because medically home really isn't a hospital at home enterprise. It is a completely new vision for delivering healthcare across the board, the full continuum, the emergency department, the hospital, the skilled nursing facility, 
the primary care office, the specialists across the board, a wholesale transfer of delivery from buildings to non-buildings. So let me walk you through the logic. Yeah. There are a series of things that can only build, be, be done safely for a patient in a facilities-based approach. An example would be a surgery center. You need a building. You can't, mm -hmm. Today, you can't safely care for a patient and perform brain surgery in their garage, uh, obviously. So let's call it advanced, highly advanced technical specialty care needs to be done in a facility, and it requires that. The same thing is true for really advanced illness like what you see in the ICU. So if, if you took all of the really complex procedures that are required to be delivered to the patient, even those after the delivered ZEV, the patient's care after the procedure can be safely done at home, which is what we're doing with Mayo Clinic, excuse me, in Florida. So you need the facility to do, safely deliver care if it's procedural-based and complex, and you need the facility if the patient is really, really ill, like requires an ICU. So that will always need a building. Always, always, and there'll be helicopters that take patients to those buildings over time, and maybe drones and helicopters will be obsoleted as technology advances there. So I'm not advocating that we're getting rid of hospitals totally. We're getting rid of those parts of the hospital that don't require a, a physical building to safely deliver care. So let's start with that. Next, about 20 years ago plus, somebody said, you know, it's really odd we need to go to the bank, but it's the weekend, the banks are closed. All right, we'll go at night during the week. Sorry, after work, we can't go to the bank either because it's closed. So somebody said, I have an idea, People's Bank. I'm going to open up on nights and weekends. And overnight, there was a massive transfer of market share from hospitals, excuse me, from banks that were open from nine to five, Monday to Friday to, you know, to People's Bank. And that became TD Bank. And all of a sudden, people were astounded. I can't believe how much volume are going to these two little startup banks. Well, the reason is you can't bank while you're in the office or working. Right. So in the same way, the only institution that you can get care 24-7 is the hospital. It's the only place. And then you, your, your primary care doctor says, Mr. Schwartz, you know, you really need to call me if you're not feeling well. Well, I did, doctor. It was Sunday night at 8 o'clock. You were closed. And when I called, it says, if this is an emergency, call 911. So I did. So the 24-7 nature of a hospital it's not just that, that it's a building's app. It's the only thing that's open right. when people get sick. Therefore, from the point of view of a family member, forget the patient for a moment. It's typically a family member that gets the feeling that there's an emergency going on. And the family member needs to get, react quickly in defense of their, of their family members. So they call 911 or reliably go to the emergency department. So unless and until that emergency department comes to you, you're going to go to the hospital or you're going to bring your loved one to the hospital. Now you're there in the hospital, in the emergency department. You're acutely ill. That emergency department clinician is very busy, overwhelmed, in fact, and he or she is going to transfer you upstairs if you need hospitalization. So reliably, because they're opened around the clock and because once you're there and you need more care, you're going to go upstairs. That's the hospital system that's facility-based. The moment that you can bring the emergency department to the patient's home, then you can also obviously hospitalize them at home. They don't need to leave their home if they've been cared for from an emergency point of view. And now imagine, because we're doing this, imagine you're a rural patient on Medicaid in rural Oklahoma, and you discover you have cancer, and you're poor, and the nearest oncologist is 168 miles away from you, 
If you even had the money to be able to go see them or get, get an appointment, you'd be lucky. But now imagine your internist who lives in the same rural community as you is connected to a platform, the same platform that delivers emergency medicine, the same platform that delivers acute care at home, that same platform is connected to the top oncologists in the world. And now that oncologist, who's an expert in that particular cancer, is connected to that patient's internist in this local community. And now on a peer-to-peer -peer basis, the top oncologist is talking to an internist in a local rural community and providing the best democratized oncology care to this patient. That's another thing you can do once you build the platform. Emergency medicine, obviously acute care at home, and now specialty care. Now, from a 24-7 standpoint, imagine the primary care office is closed, which they are in, in the evenings and on weekends. Patient calls their primary care office, connected to our platform, and now 24-7, we have their medical record. Whatever they need in the middle of the night or on Sundays, including an emergency department, the dispatch to their home, and now we're delivering 24-7 primary care. Now imagine there's seven to 15% of patients that are chronically ill, old, frail, elderly, chronic and comorbid, and they're frequently hospitalized, frequently requiring care and oversight. Again, the same platform can care for them, predict what issues they might have and stay with them. So what I just described is a wholesale, a wholesale transfer of care from a building and buildings to the patient's home, tapping into all the clinical resources that already exist so this is not hospital home. This is new healthcare system at home. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and it's hard to describe until you understand everything that we've woven together. But the idea from the beginning was to provide a safe alternative to making patients come to the care. And if I could take a minute, Zev, I need to yeah. tell you how that idea came about. Yeah. So I'm seven years old. My parents, as I mentioned, were Holocaust survivors. My mother was very, very ill after the war, pretty much all the time. My brother passed away just recently at that time from Tay-Sachs disease. And then my mother had a series of miscarriages. So she had a very tough life. Six years, three concentration camps, loss of my brother and multiple miscarriages. And here I am, I'm seven years old, coming home from school. My father was at work and she is screaming and projectile vomiting in the, in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. And I got very scared. I'd never saw her scream before. I've seen her sick before but never screaming. And, and I didn't know what to do. I was frightened more at that moment than I ever remember my whole life. And I went to the kitchen, panicked, and found her little white leather telephone book. I picked it up and I rifled through it. And remember, I'm seven and I saw a name with DR in front of it, a doctor. And I called the number and a nurse answered and I was crying. Mm -hmm. And I said to the nurse, my mother is very sick. Can you hear her screaming? Can you have the doctor come to the house? And she said, no, I'm sorry, the doctor doesn't make house calls. I said, please put him on. And I brought the phone closer to my mother so she could hear my mother screaming. Mm -hmm. He gets on the phone. It was about, I don't know, 3.30 after I got home from school. At 6.30 at night, he came with his little doctor's bag, stethoscope around his neck, tie. He was very tired. And he walked into my mother's bedroom. And my mother saw him. And the moment she saw him, peace went over her face and mm. she stopped screaming and it was a miracle. And mm. I started crying and I'm crying now. Mm. So I'm telling you the story because it's such a deep, incredible impression it had on me that literally the act of seeing him in her bedroom started the healing process. And here I am, I'm only seven years old. And I said, one day I'm going to do that. Mm. And I am doing it, except I didn't go to medical school. Mm. 
So the idea is that is everybody wants the care brought to them. When you're sick, you wouldn't get in the car and drive someplace. Right. I mean, it's the most obvious thing in the world. You, you want to be safe. You want to be in the sanctity and sanctuary of your own home and your family wants you there. So that's the first time I remember <laughs> what a miraculous feeling it was to see medicine come to my parent, my mother. And that's the heart of the idea. It's to whole, on a wholesale level, bring the care to the patient. The same way Amazon can bring you sneakers, vitamins, and asparagus. The same idea. <laughs> Just bring it to the patient. And the economics to your question, why can you cost effectively bring an x-ray to the house as inexpensively as the hospital? And the answer is you don't have the overhead. <laughs> so even though an x-ray in the hospital at, in theoretically should cost between 70 and $100, when you add all the overhead to it, it's $300. If you want to have an x-ray done in the house for a patient, you could do it for $180 for less, quote-unquote, cost, less. So when you decentralize healthcare and you know, remove the tax of overhead, you are cost competitive. Now, everyone asks me the question, well, what about in rural areas? And when you want to get into that, I'll explain the difference between decentralized care in rural areas and non-rural areas. But the economics win all the time for decentralization, period, end of story. Mm -hmm. And what about the, and, and I do want to ask you about the platform in a moment. What about the, the other question I'm sure people will have is this issue of safety. You know, you think of a hospital as a safe place. I and, don't, I don't, I'm sorry. I don't. Mm -hmm. How could it be a safe place? I mean, the number of medical errors I, I, I mentioned earlier, that's not a safe place. You're, you're, I think it's 580 times more likely to die walking into the hospital than walking into an airplane. No, it's not safe. It's the most unsafe place. MRSA infections, error rates. No, it's not safe at all. Now, feeling safe at home, being away from, quote unquote, the doctor and care, of course, it's an obvious question, but we're monitoring patients. We're monitoring their vitals. We're in direct and constant communication with them. We're literally rapidly available to dispatch to their home. And we're not obviously taking a patient home that's you know, hemodynamically unstable, we're not taking a patient home that's a high risk of falling. We're, we're carefully uh, excluding those patients that are at significant safety risk and, and leaving us with those patients that can be safely cared for at home. But from a safety standpoint, over time, when you concentrate patients and just take a look at COVID, mm -hmm. I mean, you know how many patients have gotten sick in the hospital from COVID? Sure. Staff members that have gotten COVID that work in the hospital, you do not want to congregate patients, patients, excuse me, and family and staff where there are germs. You just don't. So it's not safe. Yeah, I think you're right. We don't have to go into all the numbers, but I think it's a great response and a truthful response and an accurate one in terms of the safety. So what is the, uh, could you describe a little bit about what uh, medically home in terms of uh, uh, hospital care? I know you talked about uh, being able to address sort of ED level issues, acute issues, and then and then uh, having people. So do you, do people get literally admitted, so to speak, uh, to their home for, uh, through an ED visit or ED-like visit? Uh, or can, you know, do they go to the hospital in the ED and then they get sent home to medically home? Or how does that work? And, and what is the platform that you were talking about before that allows for all yeah. of this? So let me walk you through the platform. And then I'll explain all the different ways that patients can enter the platform. Is that, is that a good idea? Absolutely. Yep. All right, so the way I describe it, I've been doing this now since I started working in Oklahoma because it's, it's an absolutely perfect metaphor. Mm -hmm. And when I went to Oklahoma, I said, 
I said to folks I met, I said, imagine that a tornado came through your state and wiped out all the buildings, which by the way, it's not a metaphor in Oklahoma. Mm. It happens all the time. So imagine that you literally had no buildings and all you're left with is the doctors and nurses, all the clinical staff, the equipment's still intact. You still have your ambulances, your helicopters. You have everything except the building. What would you do? Who would your first call be to? And your first call would probably be to the military because for years and years and years in the battle theater, you know, soldiers are injured and they have to be cared for in the field. And what did they do without having hospitals in the field? They absolutely recognized they needed to have a medic near the soldiers. And the medic was trained enough to be connected to a command center. And the command center is where the clinical intelligence is residing. So here you have a doctor at a medical command center overseeing the medic who is hands-on the patient. So the model has four elements that was, that was inspired by military medicine. Element one, a medical command center. So the model assumes that you're going to have a command center staffed by ED doctors, hospitalists, nurses, advanced practitioners, service coordinators, and that will be open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that command center will be available to care for, oversee, and round on patients as if they were in the hospital. But importantly, not just the patients being round on by them, if the patients and importantly the family want to access and connect with the clinical team 24 hours a day, seven days a week, imagine your husband is having trouble breathing and, and you're in the bed in the hospital, you're trying to reach the doctor, you can't. First of all, he or she is not there. So imagine now you're at home and you're a family member or the patient and you need to reach, reach your physician 24 seven, you can reach your entire clinical team. So the command center's function is to centralize the clinical decision-making and to make it available 24 seven outbound and 24 seven inbound. So that's the first element of the model. We developed all the protocols, all the systems, all the software to enable that high acuity, complex care managed through a command center. So that's leg one of the four-legged stools app. Leg two, you're at home. And now technically you're in a med surgical bed, you're in a hospital bed. So what would you need to do to transform that bedroom or that bed into a temporary hospital unit? And the answer is you need equipment to monitor the patient's vitals, real-time, full-time, as well as part-time. You would need two-way audio video. You would need basically a walkie-talkie system. You would need an emergency response system. You would need equipment, supplies, durable medical equipment. And you would need all of that fully integrated, dispatchable, and set upable in less than 40 minutes. So leg one of the stool is the command center. Leg two is all the equipment, technology, and supplies in the home that allows the command center to manage and communicate and monitor the patient as if they were down the hall in the hospital. That's leg two. Mm-hmm. Leg three, the hardest part. <laughs> so today in the hospitals, Ev, you get about 18 services that are all managed inside the hospital. An example would be infusion medication, an infusion nurse, a phlebotomist to take blood, physical therapy. Uh, you get meals. You get a procedure at bedside if you have urinary retention, like a Foley catheter. You get x-rays, you get labs. All of those 18 services are managed inside the hospital, written by physician orders, executed upon in the hospital. Now those 18 services have have to be executed upon after a physician writes the orders, 
except they're not in the hospital anymore. They're from different providers in the community who have to be trained to do this at an acute, very high acuity level and then dispatched to the home with a super high reliability. And that's the heart of how Medically Home really became Medically Home. We're a bunch of engineers and logistics people. And we realized the hardest part of hospitalizing or caring for complex patients at home is logistics. How do I know? I'm the doc. I'm writing a medical order for oxygen. How do I know it's going to get there when it says it's going to get there? Because if it doesn't, that patient's at risk. I'm also at risk. So the third leg of the stool, frankly, the most important is the supply chain of services that can be rapidly dispatched, integrated from the orders of the command center. And that is the hardest part. That's where we focused all of our time and energy and investment over this decade plus. And the fourth and the final leg of this four-legged stool is all of the software that manages and integrates this, which we named SESHA, C-E-S-I-A, shamelessly after my mother. Now that you know the story of my mother, you know I named the software after her. And SESHA manages all of these services from the command center. It ingests all the data from the home, manages all the communication, and interacts and interoperates with the host medical system. And most of our customers are on Epic or on uh, Cerner. And it allows the physicians in the command centers to write one order, the document in one system, and then Seisha ingests all of it, operates the virtual hospital, and goes back and forth between the host medical record. So in our model, we have 24-7 medical care and high acuity from the command center. We have technology in the home to monitor and communicate with the patient around the clock safely, reliably. We have all the services, high acuity services coming to you at bedside and we have the software to manage the entire process. That's why we could do emergency medicine at home. That's why we could use heart failure at home, COVID at home, cancer at home. All of it's on the same exact platform. Mm-hmm. And wow, that's beyond, I love the four-legged stool. And, and that, that was the best description I've ever heard of this sort of thing. And, and it really paints the picture. What and and you so you've been at work at this for over it sounds like for over a decade, twelve years. Wow. But who's counting? Uh, <laughs> no, it's it's impressive. And do you you know before we we were just talking a moment ago about sort of safety and I'm just wondering in terms of results and outcomes and and clearly this work uh, others are engaged in similar work. Uh, you, you know there are uh, university hospital systems that have also been working at this and studying this uh, and and researching this and publishing on this for a bunch of years, uh, like the Brigham and Mount Sinai and Johns Hopkins and. Uh, now, obviously, Mayo and Kaiser. What what, what are the results and outcomes uh, in terms of some of the uh, high acuity uh, home care that you're delivering? Yeah, so let me, let me make sure I draw a very, very clear and unambiguous line in the sand for hospital home care. There are two, two models, like the Brigham, like Mount Sinai, like Hopkins. That is a low acuity model. So within the hospital construct, and I hate to get this technical, but it's very important. Mm-hmm. There are four levels of acuity that allows a patient to be admitted and meet criteria for hospitalization. And the classification is severity of illness. It's one, two, three, four. Four is the ICU. We're never going to take a patient home. It's a level four. One are a patient, is a patient that meets criteria to be hospitalized. So think of cellulitis, a younger person with pneumonia. They need hospitalization but they're not 82, they're not chronic or morbid, they're not dealing with cancer and heart failure and COVID at the same time. 
So as you move from level one to two and three, the speeds of and the complexity of the logistics caring for them are dramatically different. You can, for a level one patient, and this is what Sinai does, Brigham does, and all the others that do hospital care at home around the world, including you know, Western Europe and Australia, you can schedule a physician house call for day one, two, and three, doc gets in a car, drives to the patient, checks up on them. You can schedule nurses. They get into the car. They arrive at the time they're supposed to arrive. And that's the low acuity model of level one patients. You have a level three patient that's got heart failure, COVID, and cancer, and their condition changes rapidly, which means we need to get to them rapidly. You need technology to monitor mm-hmm. them. That is a completely different clinical operating and financial model. We're the, to the best of our knowledge, we're the only ones in the world doing two and three level care for patients at home, which is why Kaiser and Mayo made the decision they made to join and partner with us. So the outcomes. The outcomes on level one around the world have been positive in the following fronts. Cost savings are about 25%. Patient satisfaction tends to be at or above hospital levels reliably. Mortality morbidity reduction of 10 to 20%. Fall rate, dramatically different. Infection rate, dramatically different. Um, Cognitive decline, dramatically different. Because when you're at home and you have the authority of your own home, and not you know, putting a wristband around you with a UPC code asking you 16 times, what's your name and what's your birthday? Yeah, and, no. and that level of being demeaned and institutionalized. Sure. Uh, so all of the outcomes have for the last 15 years, including all the seminal work that was done by Dr. Bruce Leff and Hopkins, mm-hmm. points to low acuity hospital care, dramatic improvement in outcomes across every single metric. For us, in the high acuity side, we have not published yet. We are working in six different studies with Mayo that we're going to publish. Mm-hmm. But the economics are about the same, about a 20 to 35%. I mean, probably 20 to 30% savings across the board. Patient satisfaction levels, HCAP score is the highest. Um, fall rates, all the other things track. The big difference, though, is mm-hmm. we're working with much sicker, much, complica- much more complicated patients. And the outcomes that were compared to are much more complicated than a low acuity patient, but they tend to track almost identically with low acuity patients. It makes intuitive sense, and I'm that falls and infections and cognitive decline are much better in the home than they are in a hospital setting. Uh, in in terms of what about, and I have to ask this question because I assume people are going to be thinking this, what about uh, things like codes when uh, someone uh, blood pressure falls or something like that, those sorts of emergencies, how do you handle it at, at Medically Home? This exact same way they handle it in the hospital. We escalate and the ambulance is there and they're, they're ending up inside of the, in the hospital ED, but we're, we're excluding patients. As I said, we're very thoughtful about excluding patients that are hemodynamically unstable, which is a typical risk, obviously. And we're very, very, very focused on that. Uh, but if we need to escalate, we escalate. We, 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 we dispatch an ambulance and we get them to the hospital, physical hospital. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned before, we know one of the biggest costs and potential for cost savings in healthcare delivery these days is, is the readmission rates. And it's like you said, somewhere between 10 to 20% across the board, patients who get admitted uh, get readmitted after they're sent home or sent to a nursing home. What's the difference with medically home? Is that part of the savings you're seeing? Is that uh, you, don't, you don't have that as well? Or Yeah, we, we imagine that the model was designed to be, again, it's, it's, it's arbitrary, mm-hmm. but I 
for the benefit of ease of thinking, it's 30 days. We admit a patient for 30 days. And, and within a 30-day window, um, you are going to reliably see the following things. First, you're going to go through the acute phase of care, which typically is defined by you know, greater levels of variability in patient status and obviously IV medication. They're in, they're in a different state, maybe managing um, an elevated temperature, et cetera, you know, blood pressure risk, et cetera. Then they stable out, they go to oral meds, they start to ambulate, and then they would ordinarily go to a skilled nursing facility for 12 to 15 days where they're lying in bed and they're losing, they're losing not only cognitive, uh, cognitive function, they're losing, they, they don't ambulate and they're not walking their dog, they're not getting the mail and all the things you need to do to reliably recover from illness. So we believe that the first phase and the second phase is one phase. So the acute phase, and we call it the restorative phase because we don't believe there's anything reliably called post-acute care. Mm -hmm. So they're now in the restoration phase. During that restoration phase, Zeb, something remarkable happens. And this is typical. We're with the patient in their home. We now start to see the issues they're having with social determinants. It could be financial. It could be social. It could be isolation. It could be cognitive. It could be family challenges, dynamics at home. It could be nutritional, like they have heart failure and they, they say that they're on a low, low salt diet, but that they don't realize that Domino's pizza is not part of a low salt diet. And, and there's all kinds of social issues. And, and some of them are really dominant. Mm -hmm. And as a result of those social issues, and include, it could include medic, you know, medication adherence, even though they went to the skilled nursing home, even though they went to the hospital, the pattern of behavior that caused them to get acutely ill in the beginning gets repeated over and over again. The hospital doesn't stay with the patient to discover that. The hospital doesn't physically go into the pantry or doesn't go into the medicine chest. The point of the model is you're integrating reliably and intelligently three things that should never be siloed, which is acute care, post-acute care, and population health into a single episode called staying with the patient until they're well and understanding what it's gonna take for them to stay well. That's the heart of the model. So our patients range at home from seven days to 45 days. Um, and the model was designed for 30 days so that we could figure out how to plan and organize and operate. But that's the heart of the idea. We stay with patients to they're clinically stable and their endpoints are stable and we, we have our arms around their issues. And in some cases, it could be something as simple as transportation. They don't, they don't have access to transportation. A great example that I'm now working in the world of dialysis a lot of dialysis patients are hospitalized because they skipped the dialysis session. Mm -hmm. we, how on earth could you skip it? My ride canceled on me. Mm -hmm. Now they're in the hospital, kidneys failing. Right. So, so you, you can't silo right. the acute episode from the post-acute care from population health. You have to be able to integrate them. And that's the heart of the idea. It makes so much sense. Let me ask you a couple of questions off of that. And I love the fact that you're, you're talking about you're in the context of the patient's life. And so you actually do understand. I mean, in hospitals now, we're starting to ask those questions, you know, pre-discharge or upon discharge, but it's not the same thing as being in their home and seeing how they're eating and, and how they're living uh, and all the social determinants health around that. Number one, just again, for clarification. So do you have nurses who who is actually in the home from your team i, I know the, the command center you talked about uh and you have a whole staff there but what about in the home who goes when do they go and this is this is the heart 
the heart of what we thought through 12 years ago that everyone's getting the light bulb on their head now. Mm-hmm. So, so let's just say there are three types of uh, communities to keep it simple. Lev. And just like I kept the four pillars simple, I'm going to keep these simple. Mm-hmm. There's a, an urban patient in an urban community, a suburban patient in a suburban community, and a rural patient in a rural community. And let's say before you talk about anything around care, you recognize that those three scenarios, you know, urban, suburban, and rural, have a logistics uh, reality that drive medical care. An example, you're in a busy, busy city, and it's five o'clock in Manhattan, it's high traffic, and you're trying to get something to the patient's home, they might as well be 400 miles away because there's an accident, you can't get to their home. So there's some very significant logistics challenge in a dense city that has traffic, or in a dense city that has a hurricane and a snowstorm, Mm -hmm. or in a dense city that actually has a blackout. Mm-hmm. So in a, in a densely populated area, which you think by patient concentration, you have a, an ease of logistics, quite the contrary. You have significant challenges. Now go to the other end of the spectrum in a rural setting. You know, hospitals could be 30 to 35 miles away. A doctor's office could be 15 to 25 miles away. And you have very, very sparsely populated population and very, very sparsely and dispersed you know, medical facilities and medical, medical capabilities. So let's go to the heart of the matter. In a suburban mm-hmm. area, you've got the best of all worlds. You have people pretty close together, but not on top of each other, and you could drive and get to them pretty easily. So in, in the model, you ask the question of who comes to the home. There are 18 mm-hmm. services. Mm-hmm. So you have oxygen therapy, you have phlebotomists, you have nurses, mm-hmm. you have infusion nurses, you have paramedics for rapid dispatch. You have physical therapists, occupational therapists, all of these service providers are in the house responding to a medical order. So imagine you're lying in a bed in a hospital today, Zeb, God forbid, Mm -hmm. and you count who came to your room and what did they do? It's exactly the same. You needed blood drawn, we send a phlebotomist. You need oxygen, we send an oxygen therapist. You need an x-ray, we send an x-ray technician with x-ray equipment into your house. Every single person that's seeing you in that hospital room is seeing you in your home. Mm. No difference. The only difference is the nurse who's down the hall taking care of someone else is not staying in your house. Mm -hmm. She's coming to your house when you would have seen her anyway. So that's that's a suburban scenario. Suburban. Let's talk about rural. There are no oxygen therapists and phlebotomists and physical therapists in the rural community. What do you really have? You have paramedics. Hmm. So how do you take the paramedic function, which has been an obsession of mine for, again, over a decade, how do you take that function and retrain that paramedic to do everything? And our term of art is super paramedic. Mm-hmm. We get them to do everything. And that's what we do in rural America. We cross-train that paramedic. But remember that a paramedic is not operating off of its own scope of practice and license. He or she is tethered, connected to the command center. The physician is actually delivering the care in the home using the hands, the eyes, the ears, and the, uh, and the mobility of that paramedic in the home. And that's the heart of the model. So who comes to the home? Everyone that needs to be there as if they were in the hospital. And some people ask the question, what if they're not safe and they need someone to supervise them? Well, for patients that come out, come out of the hospital with severe, you know, very, very complex mm-hmm. surgery and there's a fall risk, 
we'll put a home health aid in the patient's home for one to three days. We do that routinely if we have to. But most of the time, the patients have family members there. If the family member is disabled and we need to support that family member with home health aides, we do. On average, across the year, we've had to do that only between 8 and 12% of the time. That's fantastic. And, you know, and again, it's, I used to think about this and think about all the costs of sending folks and dispatching them. And, you know, again, when you weigh that against the huge overhead costs that you talked about before, I understand how it works financially and economically. And what about meals? Just a quick question about that. Do you deliver meals, make meals, or, or how does that work? From the very beginning, we insisted on providing meals, but just not just for the patient, importantly for the family. Mm. Because if you, if you don't provide meals for the family, guess what the family is going to do while the patient's eating your meal? They're going to have a different meal, and you're going to create pressure for the, for the patient. So it's very important to deliver good, delicious, and nutritious meals for the patient and the family, which is what we do. You know, you, you said something to me, I think, in one of our first conversations, which really struck me, which is that you all don't admit patients, you admit families. And, and I may be saying that, paraphrasing no, that. that a, absolutely correct. We, our, our term of art has always been, we never admit a patient, we admit a patient's household. Because the number of forces at work in the patient's health, particularly when they get ill and after they get ill, is driven by the family. It's the family that calls 911. It's the family that rushes to the ED. It's the family that worries and needs to know what's going on. And we in healthcare have neglected the family over and over. And we talk about patient-centered care. It's an anathema. It has to be family and household-centered care because the patient and the family are in it together. Right. And, and from the beginning, we recognize that it's something as simple as the technology for, for you know, you know how many times a patient's family member calls, tries to reach a nurse, what's my dad's blood pressure? What's his temperature? There's no reason to do that. It's, it's online. It's available to the family 24-7. You know, and if there's, if there's any kind of issue and it's, it's a range that's creating an alert, they can see that too. Why shouldn't they see it? I just want to go back to something. Uh, you talked about the suburban and rural. What about that urban situation? Because yeah, It's did... tricky. It's, it's yeah. tricky. So in, in some cases, the best solution is a super paramedic or a modified super paramedic. Mm. But, you know, in, I'll tell you, in Greece, there's a program. It's, it's out of pocket. It's, uh, it's, it's basically emergency department at home. I think you pay 300 euros a month. It's out of pocket. And if you're, if you need an ED or you need a urgent care, you push a button on your phone mm -hmm. and doctors come on their motorcycles to your house immediately. Mm -hmm. And why motorcycles? Because of the traffic. Right. And they just zip, zip around. And if they, once they get there, if they need to order labs, it's all a la carte, you pay. And that's a very dynamic and growing business in Greece, yeah. particularly during COVID. So you have to be creative. Right. Um, in, in big city. I grew up in New York, so I'm very familiar with the challenges of logistics in New York. I drove a cab in college in New York, hmm. so I know the difference between 2 o'clock in Manhattan and 5.30. But yeah, it's, Zev, it's all logistics. Mm -hmm. To deliver high-acuity care at home, you have to be in the logistics business. I love that. That's a great quote. Uh, what are some of the challenges you face? And I'm going to just posit one that you know, I've, I'm familiar with in terms of hospital at home models that are the uh, hospital systems are working on, which is payment, uh, getting paid for these services. And, but, you know, I'll, I'll let you respond to that, but also other challenges you face. Actually, if you could give us a sense of right now, currently, 
you know, you're in multiple states. How many healthcare systems are you working with? How big are you? How deployed are you across the country right now? We are in all over California, Oregon, Ohio, Florida, Wisconsin, Massachusetts. Um, we are we are launching in Oklahoma, Texas, North Carolina, Maryland, Delaware, and very very soon in New Jersey. Let me see if I'm missing anything. Arizona, Washington State, mm-hmm. and Colorado. That's about fourteen or fifteen states. And what in terms of numbers do you have a uh, off the top? Yeah, I don't. Or... I don't. I don't share that. But yep. they're in the thousands now of patients. Yeah. That that you've taken care of. Yeah, and and I I can honestly tell you that the best way to, to remember we don't provide the care our, our customers do, mm-hmm. but just to give you a sense of the scale, when we started, I think we did three hundred patients in our first year, something like that, and we had I think we had thirty eight people working for Medically Home, something mm-hmm. like that, and now I believe we have two hundred and six employees. Mm-hmm and growing rapidly. So we're scaling, we're scaling, I think, because our model allows our customers to provide the care. Uh, but the scale of medically homes, since we made the announcement about Mayo and Kaiser, as you could imagine, given their reach, mm-hmm. um, the company is scaling rapidly. And I, I haven't talked about internationally, but that's the other thing I'm spending a significant amount of my time on is interest around the world in this model, particularly in the face of this next wave of COVID. Just getting to that issue, back to that issue of payment, has that been a challenge? <laughs> you, uh, <laughs> so I'm laughing because this is the funniest part of my journey. So uh, my partner, who's our CEO now, Rami, he was awesome. Mm-hmm. Him and I put, took out an Excel, Excel spreadsheet in the beginning. We go, let's name all the challenges because investors are going to ask us all right. the challenges. Sure. So there were 168 of them. Wow. Not, not six, and payment was a big one, but there was no regulatory framework. There, there were no paramedics that were allowed to deliver care in place. They were only allowed to transport. There were, just, there were so many things, wow. but on the payment side, which is relevant, uh, hospital mm-hmm. home waiver, which was called hospital without walls waiver, which was issued by CMS and then extended as part of the public health emergency uh, will be reliably extended, and and we're working very hard and diligently with our own teams, and obviously with Mayo and Kaiser and others, mm-hmm. to ensure that that continues. And it includes right now 130 hospitals that have applied for and have been granted the hospital without walls waiver. Mm-hmm. But here, of all the proudest things that I can share, here is on the top of the list. Mm-hmm. So we're presenting, you know, we're being diligent by CMS when they were considering this idea of reimbursing uh, for a full DRG to hospitals for hospital by walls. And we were diligent. And, and, you know, the leaders who wrote the actual hospital by walls waiver were Doug Clark and, and Lisa Tripp. And I'm proud to say after dealing diligence on medically home, they left CMS and not work for us. And, and, wow. and not because we're commercially sex successful. I hope we are. It's because they were so blown away by the integrity and the commitment we made to actually transform care. And I'm very, very proud of that. And there'll be a couple of other announcements soon in the same veins of, which is if you do the right thing, it's hard, it's expensive. It takes a lot of time, mm-hmm. an insane amount of belief and, and obviously patients, but people in their hearts who really care about patients and care about the right future for our children they will flock to you if you demonstrated that you were never going to bend, never, ever going to compromise. 
And unfortunately or unfortunately, I never bent and we never compromised. So all of these really talented health systems, committed leaders are all joining us now because the, the models that do compromise and only focus on economics, only focus on profits, only focus on return on investors, investment, over time, they, they fall away. And the one thing that we've been blessed with is we never compromise on the idea of medically home, which again, had 168 challenges. So I've been asked to actually do a thing about these 168, a whole article and list them and to show them. But let me tell you why I'm laughing. So I got to this house that I told you earlier in the podcast that I bought today. Mm -hmm. And there are 24 things that are really wrong with it. I mean, bad. And everyone who's looked at the house ran away. And the people who went to town hall to do research on it, they ran away even faster. And then I made the offer to buy it and everyone looked at me quizzically and they said, why are you doing this? I said, because I did 168 problems. This has only got 24. So that's why I'm doing it. <laughs> that's very funny. Yeah, it's after, true. It's true. Yeah, that's a great, wow, what a great lesson also for entrepreneurs. A few handful of problems would scare most people away. 168 God, there's a whole story in there. There might be a whole book in there. Yeah, uh, there, there, there is. And, and we never called them 168 problems. We called them 168 challenges. Right. And when NASA, when NASA decided they were going to go to the moon, they were close to 2,000. And by the way, Elon Musk and going to Mars is more than 2,000. So anytime you're doing something that's never been done before, if you're an engineer, you call it an opportunity. Mm -hmm. If you're a business guy, you call it a problem. Maybe if you're an entrepreneur, you call it a challenge. Yeah, it's it's the things, the way you create right. is you take the thing that no one else is willing to overcome and you overcome it. That's fantastic. Inspiring, encouraging, so hopeful. You know, in our correspondence, I asked you if you're going to give a critical piece of advice to hospital system leaders across the country, what would that be? And you wrote, prepare for an earthquake, quote, prepare for an earthquake. What do you mean by that? I, I now routinely have about three calls a day with hospital CEOs and, and used to be, I used to call them and maybe they called me back and now they're all calling me. So the conversation is uh, influenced of, I think a number of factors. Earthquake because the entire, when they were interviewing to be vice president before they became CEO, they knew that there was a system. We used to call it the third base problem. Did I mention that to you when we spoke? The third no. base problem? No. So every, not every, that's not fair. 95% of hospital CEOs were born on third base. And that means that, that they were born on almost having a home run. In other words, everyone that preceded them, the Mayo brothers, Mr. Mr. Kaiser, every system that they work for has an enormous amount of history Mm -hmm. And they were born literally without having to create any of that history. Mm -hmm. All of it preceded them. And all they got to do is to go from third base to home. They don't have to literally do the work to get a hit or get on base and get the third base. So, so this idea of prepare for an earthquake, literally, you have to get back to home plate and start playing baseball and actually get on base. And now everything's changing on you. The, 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 the credit, excuse me, the, the, the entire report card on how you and, the, and your colleagues handled COVID is not because you're a bad person, because your system was never designed to be flexible at the level to be able to contort itself and go up and down in volume. It was just never designed to do that because on third base, you never had to do that. You had to handle a predictable amount of volume that maybe changed in flu season, but that was about it. 
and, and you never had to radically rethink your staff. It was not like you burned out your entire nursing team. You ran out of ICU nurses. You ran out of respirators. That mm. never happened. Mm. So, so all of a sudden, you have an expectation of you that everyone's looking at you, and that's the earthquake. It's, it's now, here comes Dispatch Health, my, my colleague, Mark Prather, who started mm. a great company that does urgent care and emergency care at home. Mm. He's coming at you, and he says, I don't want you to go to these guys' emergency room anymore come to me. Right. Well, you never, you never had a competitor to try to take stuff out of your emergency department. It just never happened before. Mm-hmm. So you have COVID, you mm-hmm. have disruptors, and now you have patients who are afraid of coming to your hospital because they think they're going to die of COVID or their family can't come to visit them. So they're afraid to go because they think they may die and never say goodbye to their sister, brother, mother, or father. Mm-hmm. So now you've got COVID, you've got flexibility challenges, you've got competitors that are disruptors, you got patients that are not coming to you anymore. And, and out of nowhere, out of nowhere, you're being asked, what's mm-hmm. your strategy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what's your strategy? How many beds are you going to need? What kind of capital plan do you have? At $3 million a bed, do you want to write another bond for you know, $80 million or $150 million? Well, what if these hospital home guys are successful? If they're successful and you obsolete these beds, you're going to bankrupt your hospital or at, at the minimum, destroy your bond rating. And then... Here comes Mayo Clinic and Kaiser Permanente. Right. We don't believe the future is in buildings anymore. Holy shit. I just built a bunch of buildings. <laughs> so prepare for an earthquake because everything you yeah. took for granted was taken away from you in the last 12 months. That's wow. what I meant. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's super helpful. Tell me if I'm sort of misinterpreting this a bit, but it really sounds like there is a, you're sort of saying you're going to have to have an entrepreneurial mindset because it isn't, you know, just status quo. Like you say, you're not just kind of taking the next step incrementally and doing a little bit better than the predecessor you had or the system, you know, that was before you came. This is literally going back to the beginning and really solving problems yeah, one of our one of our co-founders, a, a incredible friend, partner, colleague, his name is Jim Kasky. He was CEO of the Kaleida System, Catholic Health System. He was a chairman of the New York Hospital Association, uh, Hospital Association. Mm-hmm. And he told me a story when we first met. I told him this idea 11 plus years ago. He said, you know, I'm never going to make the same mistake twice. I said, what's the mistake that you made the first time? Mm-hmm. He said, this guy came to me. He said he, he was an arthroscopic surgeon. And that you didn't need to cut people open anymore and keep them in the hospital for eight to 10 days. You can actually go in, put a little hole in them and do the surgery through a little, basically with a little television camera. And I thought he was crazy. No one's going to disrupt. We make all our money in surgery. And it took him two years. I refused to work with him, he said. It took him two years. He opened elsewhere. And all of a sudden, everybody wants to have arthroscopic surgery because obviously it's less painful. It's less dangerous. You recover more quickly but the hospital loses a six day length of stay. Right. And he said, I'm never making that mistake again. And that's what this is. This is arthroscopic surgery for healthcare delivery. I love that. What a great story. Thank you for sharing. Let me ask you a question. And I do want to kind of talk about you a little bit and how you think, you know, even, even with that earthquake, uh, you know, kind of metaphor and, and the advice to hospital system leaders. Uh, let's, let's take that question about advice. If you had a few minutes in the Oval Office and, you know, you're with the president uh, and next to him sitting on the couch is the HHS uh, secretary, health and human service secretary, and even the administrator for CMS. And, and they're there with the vice president and you're sitting there and they're asking for your advice uh, and recommendations. Uh, and you have a few minutes with that audience. What would you say to them? 
you want to get reelected, decentralize healthcare the way retail was decentralized and look at what happened. Look at what Jeff Bezos did. Look at mm -hmm. the power, decentralized healthcare. Healthcare is the largest single spending item on your budget. It dwarfs the military. Every time you spend money for a building, you, you spend you know, roughly 600 to $800 billion a year on hospital buildings. You, re you re reimburse for that. And that's the entire US military budget. You're threatened from China. You're threatened from Russia. You're threatened from Iran now because of the nuclear deal. You don't have the adequate money to pay for the military because you're paying for buildings. Decentralized healthcare. That's what I would tell you. And I think Amazon is a great analogy. It's, you know, so many of us know exactly this notion of having the boxes show up at our front stoop as opposed to having to go shopping uh, all the time. You're clearly a different thinker and doer. Even, uh, you know, I was, I was speaking to my wife a few weeks ago about you and and shared with her, I said, I, I think he said something about creating, you know, he's one of the first guys that created salad in a bag. And you think differently, you act differently, and you act on what you think, which I think is really, uh, for me, so appealing. What makes you different? Uh, you know, not just three, in, in, three, three things, okay. three things, and, and, and they're all powerful. And, and full disclosure, I, I wrote a play called 18 Stories. I'm producing and I'm performing and it's starting next year. God willing, theaters will all be open. But it gets to this question that you asked. So the first thing is when, when you have parents that live in the shadow of the Holocaust, uh, and I, I, I won a scholarship and I studied the Holocaust. I moved to Germany near Dachau and I lived there for a year. And... I fell in love with a woman who was 11 years older than me. Her, her name was Yuta. Her name is Yuta. And, and she's, you know, her father was an SS officer. Mm. And I fell madly in love with her, moved in with her. I had lunch with her father. And then one night on the Jewish High Holy Days, she made me a, a traditional Jewish meal in the middle of, you know, there were no Jews left in that part of Germany. And I started crying with gratitude and she looked me in the eye and she started to unbutton her blouse and showed me that she was wearing the Star of David around her neck. And I was never religious and actually don't follow the Jewish religion. I'm culturally Jewish. And I said, why are you wearing that? She said, on behalf of all the German people, I want to apologize for what we did to your, to your parents. And, and you came to Germany to try to understand the Holocaust. You won't understand it by visiting concentration camps. You need to understand the only way you could kill millions of people is you have to put them in a group. You have to identify them as a group. You have to dehumanize their individual identity and you call them Jews. And in the same way, Hitler, who wasn't even German, had to put us in a group so that we could kill effectively all the things that, that we thought the other group were trying to do harm to us. So just you need to know that the only way to cause that level of mayhem and death and, and evil is to put people in groups. So your number one job in life, here you are, you're 21 years old, is never join a group, never be part of a group hmm. and fight for your individuality and fight with your whole life and never ever do anything. Think the way others think, be an individual. So that's the first answer to your question. She changed my life during that Rosh Hashanah meal in the middle of Germany, wearing the Star of David after having lunch with her SS father. It was mind-numbingly large what that did to me as a young man. So that's story one. Story two, I get back from Germany and I'm driving on the highway, I-95 passing Rutgers 
in New Jersey and I hear this beautiful, absolutely gorgeous British man's voice. And his name is Alan Watts and he's a philosopher. I don't know if you know him, but he brought Buddhism to the United States in the late 50s, early 60s. And I had never heard of Buddhism before. And, and he had a story that he was telling, which second thing that changed my life. And it was a metaphor, Zev. So a man, man goes to a doctor, complains of a cough, doctor does an x-ray and says, I have bad news for you, sir. You have stage four lung cancer. And the man said, oh my God, I just thought I had a cough. Um, this is horrible. He says, yeah, I feel terrible for you. I'm sorry you want to tell you the news, but you need to go home and then find an accountant and a lawyer. And the man said, why? And he said, you need to get your financial affairs in order. And the man's dejected. And, and he said, well, I should tell you, doctor, that I had a big fight with my father about six months ago. And I said some terrible things to him and I walked out. And the next morning he died of a heart attack. And I'm riddled with guilt that I actually caused him to die. And the doctor looked at him and said, okay, uh, maybe you want to see a priest and talk about your guilt. But in the meantime, if I were you, I would go see a lawyer and account like now. And the man's frustrated. He grabs the x-rays and he walks out. On his way home, he passes a church, stops in, and the priest said, can I help you, son? He said, yes, father, I'm riddled with guilt because I said terrible things to my father. And then he passed away. And I think I caused it. And the priest said, I can help you. Come, let's pray. And, and, the, man, and the man said, okay, let's pray. But before we do that, I need to show you these x-rays. And he holds the x-rays up to the light. And he says to the priest, he said, you see these dark shadows? I have stage four lung cancer. And the priest looks at him and said, look, I can help you with your guilt, but I'm not a doctor. And he's mad. And he walks out of the church with the x-rays and he goes home. And he picks up the yellow pages, which is sitting next to his phone. And if you remember the yellow pages, I don't know if I'm dating myself, but he, I do. he picked up his rotary phone and his yellow pages. And he finds a listing that says doctor slash priest. And there's one name under it. And he calls it. And the man answers. He said, are you a doctor and a priest? And the man said, yes. He said, let me get this straight. You went to medical school. You were licensed as a physician. You went through residency. He said, yes. And you, you were trained in theology and you were confirmed in the church? He said, yes. He said, why on earth did you become a doctor and a priest rather than a doctor or a priest? He goes, oh, imagine a room with a hundred chairs, an auditorium. And on the left side, those 50 chairs in walks the 50 top doctors in the world, the top specialists in every field. And by the way, including the Surgeon General of the United States. Now, a minute later, in walks the top 50 spiritual leaders, including the Pope and the Dalai Lama. And here you have these 100 guys, 50 of the top clinical minds in the world and 50 of the top spiritual bodies in the world. And in walks you, a sick person. I'm assuming you're sick, which is why you called me. And do you know that those 100 guys, with all their training and their experience and wisdom, can help you, a modicum, compared to one doctor who just happens to be a priest? And the man who was sick said, why is that? He said, you know, God has a sense of humor. Every time God created a problem, he created it in three dimensions. He never created a spiritual problem or a physical problem. So he created them at the same time. And unless you could see the problem in every dimension at the same time, you can't heal anybody. Hmm. Because believe me, if you're feeling guilt, it's going to reduce your, it's going to reduce your immune system. If you have a reduced immune system, you're going to feel spiritually weak and afraid. And you're going to accelerate your decline. 
You are one whole person, body, soul, and spirit. You can't separate them. And unless you think like a doctor priest, you're just a siloed worker. And I heard that just as I came back from Germany after the meeting with Yuta and her, and her father. And I realized I'm going to be a doctor priest. I'm never going to think in a group and I'm never going to think the part. I want to think the whole piece. So in healthcare, I know how every penny is spent. I've gone in and scrubbed with surgeons. I've dove into every part of it to try to understand how the whole thing works. Everyone I've met that in my life with no exception only knows their piece. And it's the doctor priest's view of the world that changes everything. You start to see everything. And the thing I'm most, 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 most proud of mm. uh, is I have four children. They're all healthy. They're spectacular. I adore them. And I have three grandchildren, spectacular. One of my four kids, Brandon, at the age of nine, decided to become a stage actor, Broadway stage actor. And he, he was, he worked professionally, did pretty good. And then he said, it's a horrible life to you know, basically go from success to success, then to poverty and then to loneliness. So he decided to get into academics. He excelled in academics. Then he said, I wanna start organizing car wash workers and create a union for them because they don't have enough money to live. <laughs> he started to go to Manhattan and organize car wash. And then he started to get involved with the Democratic Party in Connecticut. Then he actually, drove Hillary Clinton to a fundraiser when she landed in Westchester Airport. On and on and on and on and on. And then three years ago, when he was in Oxford, he called me and said, Dad, you're never going to believe this, but I've decided to become a Catholic and I want you to come to my confirmation in Oxford. So I did. I flew to London, went to Oxford, watched him confirm, and then he spent his summers inside of monasteries. A year ago, exactly a year ago, last July, he called me and said, Dad, you're never going to believe this, but I became a Muslim. And I'm training, uh, and I'm already fluent in Arabic. I'm studying the Quran in Arabic. So I went to his school, spent time there with his teachers. And today, he just left Yemen being trained in the Quran and Islamic faith at the actual site of the school where the prophet practiced and his family is still there. And that story, if you called him and asked him, how on earth did you decide to do all of this? Right. He said, my dad's a doctor priest. I'm going to be a doctor priest too. Right. Oh, I so totally get that. the knowledge that is available to us that we've been misguided to silo. If you're going to be a finance guy, stay as a finance guy. Never try to understand the universe. Never try to understand mm -hmm. quantum physics. Never try to understand how a Catholic thinks and how a Muslim thinks. Just know your little piece. Shelter yourself from the complexity that's how we're all trained starting in school. I, I went a different way because of Utah. And I went a different way because of Alan Watts. And everything I've done since those two seminal events when I was 21 has guided me. You, uh, well, thank you for sharing that. You mentioned something about a ham and cheese sandwich story. <laughs> it's in my play. It's the opening act of my play. So my uncle, who was wealthy um, from Venezuela, came to visit my family and gave me a dollar. And back then, this was 1959, I was seven. And I had a dollar, a real dollar. And, and you know, I don't know, I guess that today would look like a $10 bill, something like that. So I had a Hasidic Jewish friend named Jackie Fuhrer who lived around the corner. I went over to him, I said, Jackie, I have a dollar. Let's go together to the diner by ourselves. Uh, hmm. This is in Brownsville in Brooklyn on Hopkinson Avenue. So we, we went and there was a special ham and cheese sandwich and a Coke for 35 cents. So I ordered it. And, and Jackie ordered a Coke. And just before the sandwich arrived, Jackie said, 
you know, um, that's not kosher. I said, what's kosher? He said, you're a Jew and you don't know what kosher is? I said, no. He said, your parents don't keep kosher? I said, Jackie, I don't even know what that is. Hmm. He said, there's certain foods you're not allowed to eat. He go, I said, what do you mean? He said, for example, you can't eat pork. I said, I'm not eating pork. He said, yes, you are. Ham is pork. I said, what do you mean? Ham is ham. He said, no, pork comes from a pig. And, and ham comes from pork. Ham is from a pig. I said, I didn't know that. He said, you can't eat it. I said, why not? He said, because it's a dirty animal. I said, is the ham dirty? He said, no, the ham is not dirty. It's just dirty animal. You're not supposed to eat it. It's against the law. What law? Jewish law. I said, well, what happens if I eat it? He said, I'm not done. You're also having milk. I said, no, I'm not. He said, yes, you are. There's milk in the cheese and there's milk in the bread. <laughs> You're not allowed to mix the milk and the meat. Why not? I don't know. It's not healthy for you. I've always loved ham and cheese. Your parents have ham and cheese in the house? Yes. All right. Let me just be straight with you. If you eat the ham and cheese sandwich, you're going to go to hell. And I said, what's that? He said, you don't know what hell is? I said, no. He said, it's a room. He said, let me ask you, what are you afraid of more than anything in the world? I said, cockroaches. Those big cockroaches with the long antennas that crawl around, they're disgusting. He said, imagine a room filled with cockroaches and you're in that room and they're covering your whole body and the light bulb breaks. And now you're covered in cockroaches and it's dark and you're there for infinity. And I said, how long is infinity? He said, long time. I said, how long? He said, like longer than a year. I said, I'm going to be in a dark room covered in cockroaches for over a year because I'm going to eat this sandwich. He said, yes. And then the sandwich arrives, Ev. And I thought about what he said and I ate the sandwich. And that's how my play begins. Wow. <laughs> That's a great dramatic beginning. <laughs> and you're such a great storyteller, too. I, I love that, the way you you tell the narrative. Really, I hope I can get to see the play. Um, you you I, will. I, I'm going to tell you one story that I, I, yeah. I incubated last night. Um, I, have, I have 68 stories. The play has to have 18 because there's only two and a half hours. And then I had to obviously tell these, some of these. They're extraordinary. But last night, I had a revelation. I was with my girlfriend. And it was a real revelation. Hmm. And I've labeled it the two video revelation. I don't know how old you are, Zeb, but I'm 69. I'm going to be 70 soon. And it's called the two video revelation. And I shared it with my girlfriend. She's 61. Mm -hmm. And her mother is 92 and CEO of a hospital and still works every day. Wow. And the combination of, of my relationship with my girlfriend and my admiration for her mother led to this two video story. So here's the story. Mm -hmm. And I hope some of your listeners are between 60 and 70, because you'll relate to this, hopefully. So imagine uh, at college, you entered college, and all of us in our freshman year got a box, and we were told there was one video. And we opened the box, and there was a VHS tape, VHS tape back in the day, mm -hmm. before digital, and it was a movie. And, and it was a single feature movie, and at the end of the movie, it said, when you're 65, you better have enough money for retirement you better think about moving to Florida. You better decide golf. You need to go to restaurants. You may basically have to have a colonoscopy and make sure you take a lot of vitamins and complain whenever it rains about your arthritis. And that's what's at the end of the movie. And imagine that I discovered recently when I turned 63, that at the end of my movie, hmm. compared to everyone else, I decided to continue watching, even though there was nothing on the screen. Hmm. And now a brand new movie started. And now I'm 69 and I have the incredible good fortune, the unbelievable grace and blessing 
to live a, a whole nother life hmm. because I don't think I'm supposed to stop at the end of the first movie. And I really believe with all of my heart that hmm. everybody has a second movie. They just didn't wait enough, long enough to see it. And, and I now have the most incredible life. Hmm. Uh, my kids are grown. They're amazing. Hmm. My grandkids are amazing. My business is going crazy. I'm going to be in the arts. I've had a beautiful girlfriend. I just bought a brand new house. My life's starting again. Hmm. And I believe all of us have that in us. And I see when I talk to my girlfriend's mother, how unbelievably young and optimistic and positive and engaged she is. You'd never know in a billion years she was 80, let alone 92, hmm. because of how she thinks and how she lives. I just think the, that's another thing we're told. We watch TV. Yeah. We see all these couples watching the other retirement. And then the Cialis commercial, it's right. just everything. It's all about you work till yeah. you're 65. You, you basically, you, you work your ass off to live or you just continually, you know, you continually work because you think one day the payoff is later. Mm. But in the end, you had the whole formula wrong. You should just live your life, be an individual and keep going until there's no breath left in your lungs. That's the right answer. And I think that single idea that I had last night, which I've always been, extremely optimistic, high energy, mm. high passion has reframed everything for me because every now and then I see my friends from college, they're all retired. They're all bent over. They're all mm. cutting about their, you know, mm. whatever that's bothering them, their shoulder or their kidneys, or they're not urinating enough, whatever it is. They, none of them have hair. I have a full head of hair. <laughs> every one of them has stopped working. It's just a different way to think about your life. And the mm. gift, the greatest gift we've ever been given is life. And, and why not live it to the end, to the very, very end? So that's where I'm parked right now, not just with Medically Home and my kids, with all of life. Everyone says to me, why are you traveling? You know, it's so dangerous to travel. It's more dangerous to sit home and be depressed and watch right. TV and look at all the people dying of COVID. That's, right. that's dangerous. I'm going to, with that, I'm, I'm going to bring this dialogue to a close. I couldn't think of a better ending than what you just shared with us. And I can't thank you enough for being so so honest and open and straightforward and you know just really i, I mean used the word a minute ago about reframing it's just so powerful your perspective i have so much more i'd love to discuss with you about that but i, I do want to thank you um i can't thank you enough for, for being on the podcast today and and for sharing so much with us uh, from medically home to to the ham and cheese sandwich story, to the two video story, and also for some of the painful history that you shared about your parents and the Holocaust. And again, and, and that story with your mom, just, you know, so, uh, so painful to even hear it. I could, I felt that. And again, just Raphael, thank you for being you. I, I do want to conclude as I always do uh, each and every time uh, on this podcast by thanking uh, all of the listeners out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients, I and we truly appreciate you for what you do and, and recognize how critically important the work is to individuals, to families, communities, and our society. This is Zev Neuwirth. Until next time, my friends, be safe and be well. And I wish you the adventure that uh, Raphael Rakowski just shared with us uh, that you could start a second or third or fourth or fifth video of your life. Until next time, be well.